This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vianne, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of September 26, 2022, here are some top stories. In July, Governor Ducey signed a bill into law that would make it a misdemeanor for bystanders to video record police if they're within eight feet. That law is now the subject of a legal battle, and it's been temporarily blocked by a federal judge. Kirsten Dorman has more on what Republican proponents say is an important safety measure, but that opponents see as an unprecedented affront on free speech. Republican State Representative John Kavanaugh sponsored the bill. The inspiration was my own 20-year police career where I made a lot of street arrests. Critics of the measure have pointed out that cell phone videos have been key in holding police accountable in cases like the 2020 murder of George Floyd. The American Civil Liberties Union and a coalition of news media organizations filed a federal lawsuit to stop the Arizona law. David Bodney is an attorney with Ballard Spar representing the news organizations. We've seen really nothing quite like this in Arizona. And the statute was remarkable as an outlier nationally. The law is unnecessary, Bodney says, because other laws already prohibit interfering with law enforcement activities. He says there are also potential issues with enforcing the eight-foot rule. Does that mean the police can seize a person's cell phone? Might they be seizing a cell phone of a person who is not recording, but merely looking at text messages or taking a photograph, which was not prohibited by the statute? And even if someone were filming? It's really unworkable when you think about it. Typical law enforcement activities involve multiple police officers, and one officer could say, fine, go ahead and record, and then another officer moves within eight feet of the person recording, and suddenly... There's a potential crime on our hands. Kavanaugh says this kind of rule is not uncommon and it should be easy to estimate the eight-foot boundary. The U.S. Supreme Court said that it's constitutional to keep protesters back eight feet from the entrances to abortion clinics. There has been no problem with estimating eight feet. Uh, You can't park your car closer than 10 feet to a fire hydrant. I've never heard of any issue about I can't tell what 10 feet is. So that's really a a bogus argument against the bill. He says even if the distance becomes difficult to gauge, it should still be easy to tell when the rule is violated. Besides, if there's a disagreement, the cop's going to make it clear when the cop gives the warning you must get back back eight feet that the person is not complying. So it'd be pretty tough for the eight-foot distance rule to, to cause problems. Some say this law catches free speech in the crossfire. It violated the First Amendment rights not only of the press, news organizations, but of any member of the public who might pull out a cell phone to record. Joseph Rusimano is a mass communication law professor at Arizona State University. There's a standard of law that there's no privacy in public, he says, which opens up government officials to being recorded. If something is happening in public, especially government officers, then citizens arguably should have every right to see what they do and as a tangent of seeing what they do to be able to record what they do. Kavanaugh says the main issue the law aims to address is officer safety. People can still record officers, he says, but must back up. People you don't know sneaking up, uh, especially from behind, can distract you 
Uh, and even if they don't have an evil intent, during that distraction, you can be assaulted by the person you're contacting in a, in a Boston situation, or they can escape, or, or they can hide evidence. Kavanaugh says that after a previous attempt to pass this bill, safety concerns were brought to him regarding people getting close to officers. I got a call from an officer in Tucson saying there was a group doing that in Tucson, and it was very dangerous. The group Bonnie represents has asked the federal judge in this case to permanently block the law. Kavanaugh says if the law is permanently blocked, he'll go right back to the drawing board. I will rework this from now until doomsday until I get it right. Bodney says he hopes Kavanaugh will approach a new draft of the law with the press and public in mind. If he does go back to the drawing board, may he do it with our Constitution and our constitutional rights in mind. Kirsten Dorman, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In business news. More than five years ago, a disturbing crime in central Phoenix forced neighbors to take action. They convinced the city to let them install locked gates to block public access to alleys behind their homes. Now, as Christina Estes reports from our downtown bureau, more neighborhoods across Phoenix can do the same. More than 20 percent of Phoenix households rely on alleys for trash collection. Many attract illegal dumping, graffiti and drug use. The city council recently approved a gated alley program citywide. Councilwoman Betty Guardado said her West Phoenix district is organized and ready to get nearly 20 gates. For these neighbors, this program is about more than putting a gate in their alley. It's about taking control of their neighborhoods so their kids can safely walk to school and play in their backyards. That wasn't the case when a man going through an alley near 15th Avenue and Dunlap jumped a backyard fence and exposed himself to children. It was really a tragic and sad event, but the neighborhood insisted that we needed to do something. Councilwoman Deborah Stark worked with the Royal Palm neighborhood to install six gates as part of a pilot program. High demand from other areas convinced leaders to make the program permanent. The city budgeted $500,000 to cover costs for neighborhoods where more than 50 percent of property owners support gates. Neighborhood Services Director Spencer Self said 20 percent of funds will be set aside for low to moderate income neighborhoods. For the other 80 percent, we are doing essentially a first come, first serve. So I know there's a lot of communities that reached out to us throughout the pilot program asking to be part of this. And so uh, we know that some of them are already ready. They've started gathering signatures. The city expects to fund gates for about 45 alleys. Neighborhoods with enough signatures can also pay on their own. About $11,000 for two gates. Public utilities, emergency response vehicles and property owners will have access to the gates and trash pickup will move from alley to curbside. There is definitely a fiscal and a financial savings to the city of Phoenix. Councilman Sal DeCicio said removing alley trash collection reduces risks. Just because it saves us a lot more money, damage and all that with the vehicles that we take in the alleys. In some areas, the city has moved collection curbside to protect lives. In April, the Public Works Department notified nearly 700 West Phoenix households to stop putting trash in alleys. The reason? Truck drivers couldn't always see people living and sleeping in alleys. And our drivers are the ones that are uh, feeling the effects of those areas. We have had a number of deaths within the alleys. Vice Mayor Laura Pastor wants more discussion about making all trash collection curbside. Five years ago, a city study found it would be more efficient and save money. But that conversation stalled. I think we're at a different point in time now. 
As more neighborhoods learn about the gated alley program, the city could potentially run out of money or face areas where not enough residents agree. In a situation where neighbors disagree, planning director Alan Stevenson was asked why the city couldn't just install the gates. Public right-of-way, the city holds in public trust for all of the public. It's not city land like City Hall or other buildings that we own. And so public right-of-way has a different legal analysis with it, and that's why we've got to work with the the law department about it. But alleys are also considered right-of-ways in Mesa. And in 2013, the city started installing gates in all alleys to enhance public safety and reduce fire hazards and trespassing. A city spokesperson said Mesa has more than 1,000 alley gates, and zero lawsuits over them. One of the things that I'm hoping is that the alleys get activated. Vice Mayor Pastor sees a future where alleys could become neighborhood gems, maybe with colorful walls featuring artwork and benches where neighbors hang out. A future where gates that block illegal activities celebrate positive ones. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In Fronteras News, a federal appeals court is expected to rule on the future of DACA soon. That's the Obama-era program that has given some undocumented people brought to the U.S. as children protection from deportation and a work permit. The program has been a lifeline for hundreds of thousands of young people. But Elisa Resnick reports from our Fronteras desk, others never even had the option. Angel Palazuelos was a little kid when his mom sat him and his brother down to have the talk. And this is not like the coming-of-age talk. It's the, like, immigration, you're undocumented talk. This talk, he later found out, was one that a lot of families had. What to do if one day mom or dad had been arrested and put into deportation proceedings? Like, if one day I'm picking you up from school and I'm an hour late, just know that you have to call this number and you'll be okay. Like, you'll be safe. Don't worry. Don't panic. Um, We will figure it out. You will continue to be here. You will continue to get your education. Your future is what matters. You are the reason that I'm here. Palazuelos has a blue nose stud and dark curls that bounce on his forehead as he talks. He came to Arizona with his mom and brother from Culiacan in northern Mexico when he was four. She was fleeing an abusive relationship with his father, and both of her parents were U.S. citizens in Arizona. They came on a visa and stayed. He's studying at ASU now. I remember my mom realizing, like, this is what's best for my children. Like, this is where we need to be, like this is where we belong. He always knew he was undocumented, and he also knew he wanted to go to college. So on his first day of high school in Phoenix, he asked a counselor how to do both. And I remember her just looking at me in awe, like, oh, like I don't, like, I want to help you, but I'm not sure how to help you. Palazuelos wasn't even in high school yet when DACA was introduced in 2012. To be eligible, the Obama administration said people must have been in the country continuously on or before June 15, 2007. Palazuelos's family arrived three days later. Thinking about it, I often like resent like that magic number, the three days. Like, why the number three? Why did it have to be three days? Like, how my life could have been so much more different if I just came in three days earlier. But he's not alone. A report from the advocacy group Forward.us found there was an estimated 100,000 high school graduates around the country who are undocumented this year. About three quarters of them don't qualify for DACA. That number's getting bigger. 
Yeah, so we estimate there are 600,000 K-12 undocumented students. The overwhelming majority of those young people were not in the country before 2007. That's Mark DeLitch with Forward.us. Meanwhile, the Fifth Circuit of Appeals Court could rule on DACA's future any day now. Last year, a Texas judge ruled the program was illegally created under the Obama administration and barred new applicants from applying. If the Fifth Circuit rules in favor of the lower court, it could end protection for everyone. If that happens, DeLitch estimates 1,000 DACA recipients could lose work authorization a day. And so what we really need is Congress to act, not only for the 680,000 current DACA recipients, but also for the uh, you know, roughly 2.5 million dreamers that would qualify young people who were brought here as children. DACA was always meant to be temporary. Recipients pay around $500 every two years to reapply for the status. And it doesn't provide a pathway to citizenship. That's why every week, Palazuelos and other dreamers head to Senator Mark Kelly's office to ask for what he says is the only real solution, one from Congress. This past Wednesday, on a busy street in North Phoenix, about a dozen people gathered there with signs and a megaphone. So now we're going to go inside the office and we're going to go deliver some letters from the community, both impacted individuals and allies, to Senator Mark Kelly. They've delivered letters here every Wednesday for more than a month. Undocumented students like Palazuelos and people like Phoenix resident Maria Garcia. She's also at ASU. So I submitted it late 2020 in December once it was open for new applicants. And then just last year, I was able to get my biometrics notice. And then because of the decision, the court decision by the Texas judge, my DACA was basically stopped. Like Garcia, Palazuelos worries about DACA's uncertain future. That's what caused the urgency for us. It was an incentive for us to start doing this because when DACA ends, our community needs a permanent solution. But he says he can't think too much about all of that. Students like him just don't have that luxury. We don't have the capacity to break. We don't have the luxury to break. Like, if I want to achieve all my goals, I can't be breaking. I have to stay composed. And with everything going on, it just feels like the world is on fire. And I'm just in the midst of it, just trying to do my homework. That's why, he says, he'll keep pushing week after week until something changes. Elisa Resnick, KJZZ News, reporting from Phoenix. In Science News. With the reinstatement of a territorial-era ban that dates back to the 1860s, Arizona women are no longer able to seek abortion care in most cases. But even if this latest legal decision is put on hold or the state's constitution is eventually amended to reflect what most Arizonans say they want, which is some access to abortion care, women will still need or want abortions, even into their second or third trimester. Kathy Ritchie tells us why. Imagine having lost two back-to-back pregnancies. That's what happened to Erica Christensen, the co-director of Patient Forward, an organization that advocates for the decriminalization of abortion care. My body was just really out of whack, and I already have have a complicated medical history. She and her Patient Forward co-director and husband, Garen Marshall, were struggling to conceive again. So we went into a fertility specialist to try to understand what was going on with me not being able to have a healthy pregnancy. Turns out... They discovered I was four months pregnant. (laughs) Which is 16 weeks, already in the second trimester. 
And I'm a person, let me tell you, like I consider myself very like body aware. Later recognition of pregnancy is actually not that uncommon, says Christensen. According to the best data that we have, it's estimated that one in four pregnancies are discovered after seven weeks. One in 13.5 are discovered after 12 weeks. And about one in 475 pregnancies are discovered after 20 weeks. So now imagine finding out you're pregnant halfway through that pregnancy. How does that happen? Well, here's where our biases can get in the way, according to Marshall. There's this idea that, like, you miss your period and then you, like, take a pregnancy test and then, you know, you pee in a stick and then you know everything and and that that is some sort of common experience or that someone is like oh i feel sick this morning and i threw up that must be that pregnancy. Mu i must be pregnant real life is very different pregnancy symptoms vary and people may have medical conditions that might make early recognition more difficult like polycystic ovarian syndrome and some women have irregular periods or just don't track their cycles when i ask somebody what was the first day of your last menstrual period i'm usually met with um, they look up at the ceiling and they're like, you can see them in their head counting backwards. Dr. Laura Mercer is an OBGYN and the chair of the Arizona section of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Birth control, she says, is another reason why a person might not realize they're pregnant. Women who are on some form of birth control may be choosing not to have periods. We, in fact, um, recommend that for patients who have really heavy periods, really painful periods, or other gynecologic issues. And so they wouldn't even realize they've missed a period because they think their birth control is doing what it's supposed to do. So for a lot of patients, they may not re recognize a pregnancy until after the first trimester, well into the second trimester. Of course, later recognition is just one reason why people seek out abortion care. Katrina Kimport is a professor at the University of California, San Francisco. She interviewed women who sought abortion care after the 24th week of pregnancy. Based on what she learned, Kimport looks at abortion care via two pathways. So in the first pathway, these were women who received new information about their pregnancy, in most cases, in that third trimester. Kimport says that for most of the women she talked to, that information was about the health of the fetus, and that changed how they felt about their pregnancy. For others in that first pathway, the new information they received after the 24th week of pregnancy was that they were pregnant. But it's not just new information. There's a second pathway, says Kimport. These are women who wanted an abortion earlier on, but encountered barriers. Most of the time, these were policy-related barriers. So things like um, difficulty finding a provider, difficulty finding the money to pay for an abortion. And that's something we could see more of here in Arizona if this territorial ban remains in place. But let's circle back to that first pathway and those women who learn new details about the health of their fetus. In Arizona, terminating a pregnancy because of a genetic or chromosomal condition, for example, is illegal. However, they may not get that diagnosis until 16, 17, 18 weeks along. Our ultrasounds are most sensitive, somewhere between 18 and 22 weeks. That's Mercer again. And something like amniocentesis, which she says is the gold standard to diagnose certain conditions, can't be performed until after 15 weeks. And we try to make sure that the families have all of the information that they need to make the decisions that are right for them. And where each family lands on that spectrum is a really individual and unique choice. Leaving families to decide whether to go out of state to end that pregnancy, carry that baby to term and plan for comfort care, or full intervention and everything that comes with prolonging a life at all costs. Kathy Ritchie, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. 
In education news, several Latino Arizona State University students are working with the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. this semester. As Bridget Dowd reports, the 10-week program examines Latino representation in art, culture, and history. The ASU students make up eight of 20 undergrads participating in the Smithsonian's Latino Museum Studies program. The idea is to expand the pipeline of Latino museum professionals who are passionate about how their culture is depicted. ASU animation student Francesca Galvan says there's a lot to learn about what it means to be Latino. I've definitely discovered and explored that meaning through this program. It's a way for us to tell our Latino stories in an authentic manner. If you tell these stories without bringing Latinos in that space, the narrative isn't complete. Galvan says she wants to work for a major studio like Disney, so Mexican-Americans like her will have more representation in animated shows and movies. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And finally, in KJZZ Original Productions. An author takes an inside look at how the plus-size movement gained traction in the fashion industry. Here's the show's Lauren Gilger with that conversation. For years, the fashion industry has excluded certain body types. So plus-size people turned to social media to support each other's fashion endeavor. Then, little by little, online communities spilled into the mainstream, making it more likely that plus-size people see themselves represented in the industry. Gianluca Russo is a fashion and culture writer and the co-founder of The Power of Plus, an online community dedicated to spreading love and respect for all body types. In his new book, The Power of Plus, Inside Fashion's Size Inclusivity Revolution, Russo talks to trailblazers of plus-size fashion. He'll be at Changing Hands in Tempe tonight, and I spoke with him more about it all. Well, plus-size fashion has, of course, always existed because plus-size people have always existed. And if you kind of look back at the 1900s into the early 2000s, conversations came and went. But what really happened is when social media entered the space, we were able to pick up momentum because it couldn't die out anymore. People were finding these communities. They were able to connect and be able to vocalize their demands and what they wanted from fashion. And so that momentum didn't die out. So from 2010 until now, we've seen such a heavy emphasis on it because people have been able to band together in a way that wasn't possible before social media and before mm-hmm. blogs and magazines really had this digital footprint. Right. I mean, describe this for us. Like, I remember watching red carpets maybe in high school or before that. And I mean, people were incredibly thin, like so thin that there was lots of talk about eating disorders and the effect on young girls, etc. I mean, tell us a little bit about how big of a shift we've seen in the course of this. Absolutely. If you look at the early 2000s, a lot of the trends were dictated by body type rather than by fashion. And I think that's what's really scary because you have this era where people are just trying to be as thin as possible because that's what's trendy at the moment. And so, of course, that caused so many issues. And now we have the stats that show the amount of eating disorders and body dysmorphia that that caused. What we were able to see from 2010 to now is this, you know, start of self-love and body positivity and body diversity. And that's been able to open up the conversation more. We've been able to see a more spectrum of body types represented. It's been good to have that messaging. But at the same time, fashion is still putting forth these messages that thinness is supreme. And that's Mm -hmm. what you should reach towards. That's how, you know, exclusive and great you can be if you're this thin. And so while we have space for more body types now, and we're feeling a little more embraced, and you don't have to necessarily fit the standard, there's still those people with those antiquated ideas around body who are trying to push that forward. So now we're kind of fighting against each other to see who's going to win, what's (laughs) going to come out on top, this kind of push for thinness or this push for self-acceptance. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the growth within it. It sounds like you 
you credit a lot of this to social media and the sort of the power of building that community. Um, were there moments maybe in the process that you remember when you think plus size fashion really broke through? Absolutely. I think when it really hit mainstream around, you know, 2014, 2015, especially with people like Ashley Graham kind of making a huge impact, not only on social media, but then in the magazine industry. I think once you have magazines like Vogue paying attention, it really sets the tone for the rest of the industry. Yeah. So from 2010 to 2015, you have all these people who are rising as bloggers and eventually influencers. They're cultivating these communities online of people who, for the first time, are feeling accepted and represented. And then once you hit that mainstream around 2014, 2015, you're seeing brands start to pay attention. You're seeing magazines start to pay attention because now it's been five years of people online screaming and expressing their frustration. So there was no denying that this customer was ready to shop. And at that point, once we were able to kind of break into the mainstream, I think that's when you started to see things pick up even more. And so people mm-hmm. like Ashley Graham were able to open that door and then keep it open for everyone behind them. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the past, if you look in the 90s, the plus size models you had then, it would be one or two people and that's it. No one else was allowed in. Whereas now people like Ashley and Paloma Alcesser and Precious Lee and all these other top models of today are able to keep that door open so new people can continue to come in and bring their experiences so we can continue to push this movement forward. Yeah. So I want to talk about how big the industry has gotten. I mean, this is massively powerful just in terms of, you know, monetary value at this point, right? Absolutely. The market is valued at over $24 billion at this point. And wow. the statistics show that 68% of American women are plus size, with the average size being a, around a 16, 18. So this is a growing market. And of course, there's so much potential there. I think what we're facing right now is how do you actually capitalize on that potential? How do you serve this customer in the right way? That's what brands are trying to figure out now. And they're not all having an easy job doing it. It's definitely... Mm-hmm not easy to connect with someone who you've rejected for so long. But there is so much potential, and I think that's why we're seeing such a huge emphasis here. Are you seeing brands that you think are doing it really well and are managing to to do this in the right way, as you say? Yeah, I think everyone is kind of fumbling through it because it's so new. There's definitely people who are doing it great. I think Old Navy, you know, has done a good job in the retail market, as has Target. And a few other brands like that, I think if we're looking at luxury, Christian Siriano every season and every year continues to improve and do better and have a more inclusive range. So there's people making great steps. What's hard is that no one's doing it perfect, right? Because perfection doesn't exist here. It's something Mm. so new. Everyone's going about it a different way. They're trying to figure out how do we even design for this body type? Because the fashion schools in this country that every designer goes to does not teach this. They don't teach how to design for diverse body types. Mm. We're seeing a big emphasis on the retail market. And that's where I think the emphasis needs to be right now, Mm. because that's 68% of American women, a majority of them are in the middle of the country. And and, in all these states that necessarily don't care about Fashion Week, right? Like Fashion Week might be great. They might love to see a a cover of Vogue here and there, but it doesn't influence their day-to-day. But what does is whether or not they can go to the local mall and have the options they need, whether they're going to a wedding or a job interview or whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in general, you've been covering this for a long time, right? Like how big of a shift do you think this has created, not just in the way the industry functions and who designs and who gets to be the models and who, you know, creates the clothes and then who the clothes serve, but just in in the bigger picture, like how we think about fashion, how we think about our own bodies. I think it's made a remarkable shift, even from when I started. You know, I started writing about plus size fashion back in 2016, 2017. And even in the time since then, I remember in the beginning, it was so hard to get people to talk about this, to show they care, to want to take an interest. And now whether or not a brand is making extended sizes, they're all cognizant of the conversation. They all at least know enough that there's potential here. It's something that 
they're thinking about whether or not they're going to do it. That's a different question, but at least it's been on their mind. It's something they've had to address. And so I think we've seen such a remarkable change there. And even in the magazine industry, when I started, I started at Teen Vogue my junior year of college. And it was a time when Teen Vogue went through their very public revolution where they changed the content of their magazine. Mm -hmm. And it was the first magazine to do that. And, And very quickly, we saw the progression there where everyone else took note. And now when you have Vogue putting, you know, two to three plus size models on the cover of their magazine every year, that's huge, you know, to go from nothing to, you know, 30% of the year has inclusive imagery. That's a huge shift there. Yeah. So I think we're seeing a fast change in terms of representation and conversation. We're maybe not seeing the most change in terms of availability. I think that's where the gap is now. People are aware of what's happening. They're aware that there's potential here. They're aware that people want to shop. But then are they actually going to make the options? And kind of those challenges in between those two is where we're seeing the biggest amount of difficulty at the moment. Yeah. All right. That is Gianluca Russo, fashion and culture writer, as well as author of the new book, The Power of Plus Inside Fashion's Size Inclusivity Revolution. Gianluca, thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for telling me about this. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much. This has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.